Please be seated. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We continue in our study of this wonderful gospel, and particularly as the scene shifted uh, recently last week, we are, as Camper mentioned, we are now into the Passover week. Kind of the significance is almost all of the, what we have come to up until last week took place over a course of three years. And from here until almost the end of the book, end of this gospel all takes place in the course of one week. And so it's rather intensified at this point as we look at that Passover week in which the Lord uh, was, uh, revealed himself to the people. This morning we begin our reading in verse 12, and we'll continue looking through verse 26. John 12, 12, hear the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life, his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In the word of our God, let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come together at this time, not only to lift up your name and to be reminded of your grace, we come to learn of Jesus. We come to see Jesus by faith. And pray that you would speak to us through these words that we would not only be informed of this tremendous story, but we would be formed by the wisdom and by what it teaches coming from the mouth of Christ himself. Father, be with us and that your spirit might be at work, shaping us in mind, in heart, and therefore in life to be more like Christ. For in this we find your purpose for our lives and the joy we also desire. Lord, bless us, therefore, in this time we study your word. We pray in Christ and for his sake. Amen. What we have here is a coronation. 
coronation of a king, coronation of God's promised king. That's somewhat evident by the words that we read of the crowd and the prophecies that John records that were pointing to this event. And what we see in this is really, in many respects, what we would expect to see on such an occasion. Particularly, I have in mind the crowd and their reactions. In this crowd, we have some that I would call the, the hopeful. These are the people that had either been present when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, or those who had heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead, or had heard Jesus teaching at some time, or at the very least were aware that Jesus had claimed to have come from God and that he had the message of God, the message of eternal life. And these people were hopeful that he was who he was claiming to be and that perhaps during this week he might do something that would trigger the overthrow of the Roman authority and Roman oppression and the reestablishment of Israel's throne. We also have in the crowd here, as evidenced by the text, those who I would just call the haters. Just the fact is, as, as could, can't be said any more simple, haters are going to hate, and we see them here. And we see their words. They see these crowds of people that are gathered around, and their response to the crowd is not to be humble, not to be awed or in wonder as to what may be going on, but to think that their attitude was proven. And they say to one another, we're gaining nothing. The whole world is going after him. And these were primarily the, the powerful, the religious leaders, those who would find uh, the status quo to be the best means to keep them in the life to which they were accustomed. And Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was one if he was to be seen as the king. If there was any kind of overthrow, whether it was political in nature or whether it was merely religious in nature, these are the situational losers. And situational losers tend to be very nasty people in almost any environment. And then we have who I find the most intriguing here are the Gentiles, or as our text in the ESV points out, that they are, are the Greeks. They are there, and they are in one sense representative of the fact that Jesus is the king not only of Israel, but king of the nations, that our God is not a tribal God, but he is the God of all peoples. And these who were not born into Israel, into the family, have come, and they said they want to see Jesus. And, and what I find intriguing about these people, these Greeks in particular, is that there's really nothing in our text that would indicate that they are on a spiritual journey, that they are among the hopeful necessarily. It's quite possible that they are, but I think the, the context and the, just the, the, the tradition would indicate that they are people that are there mostly out of curiosity these are people who very likely went to their travel agent and said, look, we have money and we have time and we want to know what's going on in the world that might be of interest to us right now. And their travel agents sent them on a Mediterranean cruise and told them that they might want to pull off into the port near in Israel and then go inland for a little bit to this cute little festival that the Jewish people did every single year at this time called Passover. And the basis of that was that these people believed that back in the time uh, that their God had delivered them from the power and the oppression and slavery from Egypt. And now every year they gather together to remember what God had done 
and what God had promised. And so these Greek people, hearing that, they, they did make that port. They made their way into Jerusalem. And when they were going and inquiring, just like anybody who goes on a travel uh, uh, holiday, they began asking, what's going on? What do I need to see? And, and they kept hearing this name, Jesus. And so they said to themselves, well, we got to see this guy. You know, we hear he teaches. Maybe he'll, you know, say something that will be memorable. We hear he does miracles. Maybe we'll see something. We'll go get a selfie, and we'll have a story to tell when we go back home. And so they found one of his disciples, one who has a Greek name, so they figured, I guess, that he would identify most. Seems to have worked because they go to Philip, and Philip then goes to his friend Andrew. And Andrew and Philip together go to Jesus and say, these people want to meet you. They want to see you. And it's really Jesus' reaction that solidifies for me. And again, it's, it's my opinion, and others might see in their words, we want to see Jesus as a spiritual hunger and a passion. But Jesus' response to them is what, to me, says, that's not necessarily the case, because he doesn't say bring them on. He does something that is really kind of strange, in, in a sense. They, he uses their inquiry as an occasion to explain the very reason he had come into Jerusalem, really the very reason he had come to earth in the first place and to declare the gospel in a very vivid and radical way. I mean, it is really kind of strange. Imagine that you go someplace, or if you're a guest with us today for the first time, and for whatever your reason might be, that you want to meet me. So you go to one of our elders or go to camper and say, I want to I meet the guy. And then after camper or whoever comes and tells me that you want to meet me, Here's my response, not bring them on and, oh, that'll be great. But truly, truly, I say to you, the time has come, the hour has come for, for me to be glorified. Um, I, that's a little weird. But that's what Jesus did. Now, Jesus had a purpose. It would really be weird if I did it. But that's, uh, um, but, but if you're there and if you're one of these people, that that's, that's got to be the same kind of effect as, I just want to meet the guy. And Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified, which basically means, or in reality means, it's time for everybody to see me for who I am. Because there's nothing that's going to glorify Jesus anymore than the recognition of who he really is, that he is God who's come in the flesh and for the purpose of redeeming a people. And in what we see, the discourse that follows, we are seeing how he will be glorified, not just in the revelation that he is God who's come in the flesh, uh, but how he will do that, which is by going to the cross. And Jesus makes this odd declaration, and yet it is a profound explanation of the gospel in its most radical form, in a way that many misunderstand, and even many who are followers of Jesus Christ tend to forget or have not fully understood it. See, we need to understand kind of the general attitude too, or at least I think we do, to understand the, or to receive the full impact of what Jesus is saying here. If I was to ask the typically American evangelical, and that means one, I'm being charitable and saying the ones who are the followers, the ones who have some knowledge uh, of what the Bible says, and ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? I would expect that 
the most common part of the answer would be to believe in Jesus. And that is absolutely right. But where we find ourselves at times tripped up is not in the understanding that to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus, but we get tripped up in our understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus. And it's in the text. It's what follows Jesus' declaration that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's in verses 24 through 26 that Jesus gives us a very vivid illustration of the gospel, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and how God is in the wor- at work in the lives of those who belong to him. Now, as we look at the text, we can follow, there's an outline here, and our focus will be in verses 24 through 26. And there is a, an outline for those of you who like outlines. And for those of you who like alliteration, you're really going to be happy today because the outline works out that way. And we see it flow this way. First, Jesus paints a picture, a word picture. Then he gives us two principles that flow from that word picture. And then he concludes with a great promise. And so first we look at the picture that Jesus gives. And so immediately after, he declares that he would be glorified. Jesus makes this declaration, or he he tells this story, in one sense seeming to be a non sequitur, at least until we get to uh, understand the first principle. But Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, again, taking that as flowing from the fact that, you know, what he has just said previously, we have perhaps studied enough that we are conditioned, but we, it really is kind of a, it's not the natural flow of a normal conversation. I'm now going to be glorified. Now, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, then it remains alone and it's not going to bear any fruit. I mean, they don't seem to go together, but... They do, and we will see that very clearly. But the, the picture that he's painting is one that everybody there would have certainly understood. Those of you who are gardeners certainly understand, and most of us who have black thumbs would understand, even at least in principle, is that in order for life to come out of a seed, the seed has to be put in the ground, and the seed has to die. I mean, it's a pretty basic principle of biology, of botany. And that's the picture that Jesus paints for us. But from that, we find our two principles. The first principle is this, that the death of Christ is the seed for our eternal life. And we see that not so much declared, but by the implications in the text. When Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified, and then he immediately follows by declaring that Death was necessary for life to come. Jesus had long been talking about the the time of his death. His disciples didn't understand, but he seemed to obsess on it. And as you study not only John's gospel, but any of the gospels, you see the frequency by which Jesus very directly talks about his coming death, and then the subtlety by which he makes reference to his coming death. And so Jesus is glorified in some way by the death that he was anticipating uh, that would come. 
not seen as vividly, but is evident by a clue in the beginning of our text in, in the, these words, the next day. It means we go back and find out what day were they before, and the day before was six days out. Now, obviously, then it's the, the five days out. And traditionally understood uh, by at least the Jewish people that were there was that that was the day that they would often select the Passover, the Paschal Lamb, the one that would be sacrificed on the Passover, the one whom Jesus would identify himself as being the Lamb of God who had come in order to be slain, in order to redeem a people for himself. So we have a theme that is here in, in, in very subtle clues. And then when you consider that Jesus himself had declared earlier to his disciples that the Son of Man had come not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many, we see a very clear picture of the essence of the gospel and that Jesus' death was an absolute necessity for our life. And Jesus continues to focus upon that. And many of you would say, of course. I mean, Jesus' life and his death are the essence of what it means to believe. I, I believe that. And, you know, you can't deny that. I mean, believing that is kind of like the ticket in. But functionally speaking, many of us live our lives as if the death of Jesus Christ is the ticket in or the added information but not a significant influence on the way we live day to day. And yet the centrality of it in the message of Jesus recorded by all of the Gospels, exposited by the others, uh, Paul particularly, indicates that it is not just something that's trivial, it is not just a ticket in, it is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, that our relationship is made by remembering celebrating and identifying with his death. So much so that the theologian John Stott once said that if your religion, if the, if, if, if the cross is not center of your religion, then yours is not the religion of Jesus. And what he's saying is that if our faith does not hinge on the death of Jesus, if we could function day in and day out now, whether Jesus died or not, his death has no significance for my life today. It just got me in the game. Then what we do inadvertently is we diminish Christianity and we make it into merely another or maybe the best self-help plan available principles from Jesus' teaching and his example that help us to do a moral makeover of the lives that we are already living. We turn Jesus into Tony Robbins. He's better because he's God, and so therefore he knows more. But if our faith, we live our faith as if the primary purpose is to get more wisdom so that we live better and we can be more successful, so that we can be more happier. And then we bargain, we make the deal with God, and as that happens, and of course I'll give back to you, whether it's financially or in my life, or I'll, I'll praise you. We remove 
Christ from our Christianity, Christ, Messiah, and the purpose for which he's come. You see, the essence of Christianity is not in what we do or in our duty, but what Christ has done and what he has accomplished. And we relate to him, the gospel itself. We, we, if we focus in on, on as our faith is based on what we do, we move the gospel, the word gospel, from meaning good news and turn it into meaning good advice. Our identity then is rooted in ourselves, our performance with Jesus' help and wisdom and teaching. But our identity is pretty much based on our successes and our failures. And Jesus clearly here saying the foundation of everything is his death, the life we desire, the eternal life we hope for is found in the seed of Jesus' death. He himself went into the ground, died, dead, so that life might come. I, I'm pricked when I read this from Michael Horton. He says, the challenge before us as Christian witnesses is whether we will offer Jesus Christ and, as, and the, as the key to fulfilling our narcissistic preoccupations or as the Redeemer who liberates us from its guilt and power? Does Christ come to boost our ego or to crucify our ego and to raise us up as new creatures with our identity in him? We need to remember that what Jesus is teaching here is the foundation, the fundamental aspect the, of the gospel is that the death of Christ is the seed for the life that we long for. And we need to remind ourselves of that because we like to put ourselves in the center of that story. And therefore, we must remember Christ and him crucified because that's the power at work of the gospel that enables the principles and the teachings to bear fruit. But there's another principle here as well that we absolutely need to understand. And it touches on the area why many of us are often very frustrated in our walk with God. That we don't see the fruit that we would like to see in our lives. And that we feel defeated or sometimes even become hopeless. And we need to attach the teaching that Jesus gives to us in verse 25 with the parable, the picture parable that he gives of unless the grain of wheat dies, falls in the ground and dies. There's a principle, that's the principle overall, but the application of the principle, the second principle that we need to see is Jesus is telling us that death to self is how that seed flourishes. So there's a sense in which we are both the seed, because he's telling us we are the seed, but we are also the soil. Death is the soil. Our death to ourself is the soil. But let me back up into what Jesus says here. So with the understanding of the, that, the picture, Jesus says this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, before I move on, I need to touch on the whole hates this life kind of thing. Because that's easily misunderstood. It's a, it, in one sense, I'll just call it a hyperbole here. No, maybe we do hate this life here, and that makes us want to hope for others. And others of us, the life's really not that bad. 
And for some, life is wonderful. And so Jesus is trying to say, well, why should I hate my life? And, and really the idea hate here is similar to when he uses it in terms of our relationship to our family. And, and he's talking about recognizing that what Jesus offers, what the kingdom of God is, is such a preferable alternative to what we are experiencing here that when we recognize it, we would much rather have that than what we have now. It's just so much greater that by comparison it would seem like I would hate to continue like this when I could have this. And that's what Jesus is appealing to here in this. But in putting these two things together, the principle that death to ourselves is how the seed flourishes. Jesus wants to understand that we are, that, it, that this is applying to us, not just to him, but there's an application to us. And we see that in some of the words that he uses in, in, those, in those two verses. The whoever, well, he's not going to refer to only himself when he's talking about whoever. That's a, a broad phrase. And we see it again in the verse, of, in verse 26. If anyone serves me. And, and so it's a very broad, it, it, it goes out from beyond himself, even beyond his disciples, to anyone and whoever. Uh, and, and so that would include us. But with the understanding that he's speaking to us, here's what he means, using, picking up on his language and his, his illustration. What he means is this, is that you can't get a garden by merely improving upon the seeds. In other words, if you have seeds and you decide, okay, this is a really good seed, I'd hate to lose this seed, because I really want to keep the seed, because this looks like a very special seed. But I want what the seed is going to produce, so I'll figure a way to keep the seed and get what the seed is supposed to produce. We're putting it in another way. You can't have a seed that says, I'm a seed. I've always been a seed. I'll always be a seed. I'm just a seed. Now, of course, I would like to have, you know, something very fruitful coming out of me. I'd like to have, you know, a great tree that would blossom in the spring and bear fruit in season. I'd like to have that happen. But I'm just a seed. Well, maybe somebody can tape, you know, one of those big old apple trees to me. God's powerful. Maybe he'll do it. I, I know I can't do it. I don't have the strength in myself. Somebody from the outside is going to have to do this for me and, and make this happen. But maybe somehow... He'll, you know, put that on me and I'm a seed, but I know what it's like to bear fruit. That's ridiculous. We know that the only way that we're going to get fruit is if the seed goes into the ground and the seed dies. Holding on to a seed bears no fruit. We, we know this because we have in museums, agricultural museums, they have what are known as petrified seeds. And you can identify what they are. And they're old and, and they're hard and whatever. But no matter how old they are, they never have produced anything. They just sit in a museum and they're seeds and they'll always be seeds. And if they're always seeds, they're never going to bear fruit. And here's where many Christians misunderstand the promise and the power of the gospel. Because we are the seeds. And we can only 
bear fruit. We can only become what we were created to be by dying to self, being made something different by the power of God through the power of the gospel. But too many Christians are like the absurd seed. I am what I am. I wish I could bear these things. I wish I could see these things that God says will be true of those who belong to him. Maybe somebody will help me. But I'm just a seed. I'm just what I am, and that's what I'll always be. And we may recognize in the gospel that there's a promise of forgiving us for our failures and for our sin. We may recognize that we have a power that is promised to dwell within us by the Holy Spirit as a gift, and we have gifts and talents that we recognize that have been given to us by God. We may recognize the, the provision that God gives to us in which we live and that could be and seems to be fertile soil. But we will never blossom. And we will never bear fruit. And we will never be what God desires and designed us to be if we miss the essence of what Jesus is saying that unless we are willing to die to ourselves, to the life that we now have, this is as good as it gets. Who needs to die? We all do. And quickly, I'm going to ask us a couple of questions. Are you someone who is easily offended? People say things and you're not sure how to take them, so you put them in the insult category. Your feelings are easily hurt. Are you someone who freely and frequently defends yourself? People say or think something of you and you explain to them why they're wrong. Or as I prefer to look at it in my life, I'm not defending myself. I'm just helping you understand the context better. I'm just explaining. It's not a defense. If you understood, you're not wrong. I get why you think that. But if you knew more, well, then you know that you were wrong. Are you one who's prone to self-promotion? You're always telling everybody about your resume or your ambitions, name-dropping. All of these are indications that the person who embodies these is probably not dead to self. And their identity is wrapped up in what people think rather than what God says you are. I'll throw one more in as well. Are you someone who struggles repeatedly with the same sin? It's quite likely that you've not died to self because a lot of our sin, and I don't want to reduce it, and it's much more complicated than this, but in the overarching diagnosis is that when we struggle with sin, it's often because we gratify the flesh as a means of feeling good or forgetting what is painful, numbing ourselves and medicating ourselves. That's why we go to these things. 
And if any of these descriptions are true of you in any way, then it's an indication that you need to die to yourself. And, and I'm speaking to myself, and I wrestled with whether I would share these, and I didn't in the first service, because frankly, they make me feel bad. But we need to hear them. Because only when we recognize that do we recognize that we are in need of dying to self. And it's not just a great principle that we need to. I need to die self today and tomorrow and every day. But the bigger question is, how do we die to self? I mean, it sounds like an interesting concept, and Jesus gives us the clues. And the words that we see in verse 26, uh, descriptive terms that he says, and I won't go into great detail, but they paint the picture for us sufficiently. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, serves and follows. Those two things go together. And when we think about the implications of what it means to serve and to follow Jesus, we recognize that what he is saying is that we put to death our dreams, our ambitions, our plans and how we're going to use our talents to make ourselves something and we subordinate those to what God has designed us to be. Now, it's not that what we dream are totally wrong. He's wired us, he gives us passions and he's given us gifts so we may be in the right place. But rather than trying to figure out how we can get God on our side to bless us so that all of our dreams will come true, we lay down our lives and saying, Lord, you've given me these gifts, be at work within me. What would you have me to do? And day by day, step by step, our identity begins to form and we follow his passions. Death to self is a matter of saying, not how can we get God to get on my side, but how can I get in God's story? Where am I in God's story? I'm going to share a story that I think helps us understand this. It's a story of five men. Five men who were all in the late 20s, early 30s, all shared, had a shared dream, shared uh, hope. All of them had their own lives, could have been doing any number of things, but their shared hope was that they would take the gospel to a particular people in, uh, in, in Ecuador. It was the Warani people. Five men we're all graduates of Wheaton College. One guy's name Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, and the one who is the most remembered is Jim Elliott. So they moved their families to the jungles of Ecuador in order to reach the, the Warani people that the neighboring tribes referred to as the Akas, which was a disparaging term. Aka means savage. So even the other savage tribes would refer to these people as savage because they were. And these five men initiated contact and actually had some interaction with the, these tribesmen that they wanted to reach for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then one day on January 8, 1956, after one of their contacts, they had gone thinking that they were going to take them up on a plane ride. They, all five men, were savagely attacked, attacked by about a dozen of the tribal warriors, speared to death, days later seeing their bodies along the stream, on the shores of the stream that ran by the village. They laid their lives down that others would be able to live. And what really was fascinating is these guys all had guns. We went back into their, their camp area, they all had guns, but they had made a pact with each other and a covenant before God that in order to reach these people, even if they were attacked, they would not defend themselves. They were willing to lay their lives down, die to their self, so that others might live. And they died for it. They didn't just die to self, they died. 
Life Magazine picked it up and ran a tan spread and was actually on the cover of Life Magazine. And the reaction to that from a lot of the nation was, what a waste, what foolishness, why do that? They just, they had life and they, they just chose death. But they chose death in order that others might live. And that's the noteworthy part of the story and it, most people know, but what people don't know often is the rest of the story. After these men died, their families didn't go home. They moved closer. Wives, children, and Nate Saint's case, his sister, Rachel, also moved in closer and continued to interact and to minister to these tribal people. And these people who had murdered their husbands, the combination of their own guilt and the love that was oozing from these women and children broke their hearts and they received the gospel, all of them. Even to this day, the Warani people are 95% Christian. They died that others might live. They saw their desires come true. More fascinating than that, two of the men who were the attackers are elders in the church among the Warani today. Something that I learned just recently, which is surprising because this is a story I've known very well. Um, uh, Nate Saint's wife is a member of our home church. Uh, family, friends of Carolyn's family. Steve Saint is a friend, was a friend of Carolyn's father. Uh, Steve Saint uh, gave um, um, my father-in-law a, a spear that now my son has. He got, when he was about 20, he asked for a machete when he was eight. We said that's probably not a good day. When he was 20, a spear was okay. But that's a whole other. So this is a very personal story to me, and I've studied and seen it a number of times. But what I didn't even know until a couple of weeks ago is that one of those men who had murdered the five missionaries, who was an elder in the church, he baptized the grandchildren of the men he murdered. They laid down their life, and it bore fruit. And Jim Elliott is noted for these words that many of you can probably declare before I say them, but some of you may never have heard them and you need to hear them and remember them because they are truth to which, which empowers our lives. But shortly before his own death, Jim Elliott wrote in his own journal, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And to a large degree, we see from that wisdom and from their lives a, a drastic image of what Jesus is saying in terms of the promise. The last thing we have here, we see in verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These men are honored not only because we remember them, and there's books and there's movies that are made about them, but the very thing that was the passion of their heart has borne fruit even beyond what they had expected. And that promise is not only to those who do great and tremendous things, it's to everyone who is a follower, anyone who follows, anyone who serves the Lord, the Father will honor him. Now, we are like, likely to have movies made about us, and nobody's going to be writing a book about us. And you may even wonder sometimes whether God knows really what you're doing, because, you know, nobody's thanking you. Nobody's giving you credit for it. But this is an imagery of the promise that the Father will honor you. And the greatest honor that we have is going to come on the day that we're told about in the scripture of this, is that the Father will say to you as you stand before him, well done. And when you hear the Father saying that to you, when you know that God the Father says, well done to you, you are now aware that he knew everything that you were doing. He knew how you were serving him, even if nobody else was thankful or cared about it. And he honors you with his congratulations saying, I love it. Well done. And hearing that makes it a life worth living and it makes it a life worth dying for.
that God give us the grace to die to ourselves that we might see life and fruit. Father, bless us, I pray in Christ. Amen.